almost anything you want to do has some sort of way of running an experiment around it. And so I think it kind of factors into what's the question that you ask. And the first question is usually kind of how do we evaluate opportunities? Product thinking has rapidly gone from nice to have to essential. Leading this mindset shift is my acclaimed guest today. As VP of Design at CoStar Group, she's charged with transforming critical product experiences for the world's top commercial real estate data provider. She's also authored the book, The Product Mindset, which helps countless companies embrace user-centric approaches. And she has built pioneering product teams and coached executives on competing digitally while still making time to mentor startups, speak internationally, and promote diversity. Please join me in welcoming Jessica Hall, Vice President of Design at CoStar Group to the Same Logic Podcast. Jessica, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I I don't entirely know who you were just describing, but some of it did sound familiar. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So pretty much tell us about your journey and, and how you found um, your, your passion in design and, and help, tell me like how that ended up with you um, becoming the VP of design at CoStar. I was pretty bad at drawing things when I was a kid. And so I never thought I was going to have a creative career, that I was going to have to figure things out. And in fact, I was convinced that I wanted to be a reporter at the Washington Post. Like that was mm. the dream until I spent a summer working for a news museum in the Washington DC area and worked with a lot of journalists and really figured out, yeah, no, uh, that's not for me either. But I did at the time start doing, you know, graphic design and figured, oh, wait a minute, I don't, if I don't have to draw something that looks like the actual thing I'm trying to draw, I can actually have a creative career. And so it was graphic design, exhibit design, set design into animation and video, and then to interactive ex exhibitions and websites and mobile and and a variety of projects always working in some sort of combination of product and design until I kind of arrived at CoStar in, in 2020. I told my parents, I want to go into commercial real estate, which is about the worst time in the world to go into commercial real estate. But um, what we do in our business is we help people in the commercial real estate industry make decisions. And there were so many decisions that need to be made given all the ups and downs of the market right now. So how do we use data? How do we take information, connect people together, and use decisions that seem like a really uniquely interesting challenge at that point, which is why I arrived here. What's it like working at CoStar and what aspects of your role as a VP of design do you find most exciting or most challenging? CoStar, interestingly enough, started with our founder who was had the option to buy a commercial building and he was trying to find out if it was a good deal or not. And a lot of times we think about how do I make a decision about what to buy? And we have so many options. We can read Amazon reviews or Google reviews or blogs or, or uh, you know, use things like TrueCar or my former client Carfax. And there's so much information that makes it possible to make a decision. And that didn't exist in commercial real estate. A lot of that information was really locked up and each individual broker has their little pieces of information. And what CoStar did is really make it possible for that, all that information to get put together, to be curated and to be able to enable an entire industry to run. And what makes that challenging is that 
we have so many different people trying to do different things using the same set of data. So we've got people who are on the leasing side, people who are on the buying side. We've got brokers, owners, lenders, appraisers. We have hotel operators. And, and we have people doing these things in like 200 countries. Hmm. So um, in terms of there's a ton of data, it's also a legacy product, right? It's been out in the world for over 30 years and has grown through acquisition. So that means we've got a lot of stuff that's duct taped together. We're doing a pretty big international expansion heavily into Europe, but also we have hospitality stuff already in Asia. And, you know, obviously, you know, the design team's maturity when I joined, um, design kind of reported to individual product managers. There was no kind of central design function. There was no philosophy on what did it mean for CoStar to have design? How are we going to make things consistent? You know, a lot of the kind of typical practices you might have expected of a team to exist just didn't. And so all of that together, my, this was a really big ship to turn. The assignment was figure out how to turn it. Mm. So so reflecting on that experience and, and and other experiences, what are some key lessons that you've, you've learned that have contributed to your growth in your current role and in your field overall? There have been many. I generally the kind of person who needs to get the bruises to learn the lesson, you know, like I gotta, I gotta go out and then, um, and then I figure it out. I wish I could be the kind of person who could just learn just by reading other people's mistakes, but no, I make all of mine. I think the one I always reflect on when I'm talking to folks is really started with my mom because she said it to me all the time. And I, I tell people all the time, which is make them tell, you no. Um, she always said that it's like, ah, I want to try out for this play or this sports team, or I maybe should I apply to that college? And her answer every single time is make them tell, you no. don't just say no to yourself. You have this notion that you want to try this thing. You're a little bit scared of it. Go for it, do it, go make it happen. And in some cases I didn't necessarily make them told me, no, I just started to do it. And then everybody's saying, oh, well, she's in charge. So we're just going to follow her. And it's amazing how you can do that at 18 with grown adults sometimes it's like, well, I got this ball and I'm going. So someone's going to have to stop me. And so I think that was kind of that spirit she had of like, of not necessarily doing what she was told or expected, but to go her own way and the strength of it, I think kind of rubbed off on me. Um, the next lesson actually more comes from my dad, which is to kind of understand that people and organizations are weird and irrational. Organizations are made up of people and people do things for reasons that you do not understand. And, you know, you have to try and figure out where are you coming from? What are you trying to do? How are you seeing these things? And if I can just start from there, I have a better chance of figuring out how to make this work. And because a lot of times I think we have notions based on our parents or what we learned in school, that this is how things are going to work. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many designers and product managers I've interviewed over the world with, this is how projects work. I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's actually not how that works. And it works in different places everywhere. So if you kind of accept this notion that things are going to be different and I have to kind of figure out what's going on and how to best work with it, that usually helps. And then I think, you know, you got to understand the business. Particularly, I think designers and product managers have this struggle where it's kind of like, no, I look after the customer and the business is those other people on sales who I don't fully understand, but they're always asking me to do things. 
And so that you really do need to understand the relationship, understand the business that helps you build the relationship that helps you understand what you're doing. So you're making the best possible decisions as you're going throughout your day. I love that. You mentioned your, your parents, um, who have been other mentors that have been very impactful, um, on your journey and how did they influence your, your outlook or your approach? Again, many, 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 many folks. I think my very first boss when I was 18 at the museum, his name was Bob. And he looked at me and he said, if you're not getting in trouble, you're not doing your job, which is kind of an amazing thing to tell someone who is like an 18 year old punk that you are going to have to figure things out. I think about Jack Hurley, who always said no surprises. And if you're worried about the credit, you're never going to get anything done. I think about Paul Sparrow, who would bust me down to the frame if the edit wasn't, I put together a video, I put together experience. He's like, the payoff's not here. The story doesn't work. And you messed this thing up. Like this one frame off like 30 minutes ago and, and people who are super tough on the work, but supportive of me as a person. I think about, oh gosh, so many people I've worked with over the years who have taken the time to coach me, to evolve me, to text me after a meeting where I pitched something or like your pitch was terrible. And you need to fix that. And and I guess um, what I try to do is to say, I've been beneficial of so many things. Like how do I turn around and and help other folks and not just individually and through volunteering, but also a little bit more at scale, which is where I think like writing and things like podcasts come into play where you can help more people than maybe you could ever interact with one-on-one. So in the realm of UX design, conducting experiments on how to understand users um, is very crucial. Can you share some insights on how you approach and conduct experiments to, to optimize specific user flows or, or journeys at CoStar? My funniest experiment of, of doing things comes back from the old museum days was we wanted to make this interactive table and eight people would play this game about ethics all together. And so we placed everybody around the table and we put all the questions in uh, clear plastic balls and roll them around the table. So they all had to like pick them up and then answer them and throw the thing up and ding. And so almost anything you want to do has some sort of way of running an experiment around it. And so I think it kind of factors into what's the question that you ask. And the first question is usually kind of how do we evaluate opportunities? You know, you're listening all the time. You know, I look at what are our customers saying and feedback that they're getting us, talk to people from the sales team, you know, look at the metrics. So it's, we start to say, I, I think we have some places where we could invest some time and effort. And so the first one is like, how do we evaluate those opportunities? Which problem? We have lots of problems, right? Like, which ones are we going to solve? Which ones have the best possibility for us to get investment? So that's a combination, I think, a lot of of interviewing, looking at the metrics to kind of say, I think it's over here and then going out and talking to people to get a better sense of what's really going on and, and what is the real upside of spending some time here. And then once you have a, a prototype or an idea, we'll put that together either in a wireframe or a mock-up. And then we usually start up internally trying to make sure we, we test with our own researchers and salespeople. Part of the reason why we need to do that is because our world is so detailed and so specific that I really need to make sure the example makes a lot of sense and it has all the pieces. When I was doing consumer checking account, most everybody understood what they are and they could do, but here it's like, wait, I'm trying to evaluate this deal and that square footage 
and that rent type and this thing, they don't go together. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay. So we actually have to spend a little bit of time making sure the opportunity that you're analyzing actually makes sense from the type of deal it is to the potential rent and who's the owner and how they are going to interact. So we usually do that. And then we'll do testing with our clients. And then once things are out in the world, we use different tools to say, hey, this is a new thing. Check it out. And and here's how to use it and uh, give us feedback. And then we're able to look at that as it's coming in and say, oh, wow, this is doing something we didn't think it was. Let's go talk to folks and, and figure out what that thing is. Every role comes with its uh, own unique challenges, right? Uh, what's one yeah. of the most challenging aspects that uh, you encounter, I would say, on a daily basis as as VP of Design at CoStar? Yeah, I get asked a lot by folks, what does it mean to be a VP of Design compared to like a design manager or a design director? And I think a lot of times as the, the title goes up, the expectation of what you, how you impact the business also goes up. So a VP of design is, is really a leader of the business who needs to be able to understand and contribute just beyond design. So you understand, we go talk to our other sister brands and figure out what functionality are you guys working out? Where, where can we pull these things together? When can we use your piece and this piece? Um, you're working across multiple product managers who have their own ideas about how things are going to be, and we need to bring them together or multiple business units that have different ideas. So the big piece of it is really being able to create alignment to kind of understand what people are doing, to get them on board with one way of going, because so many of them want to be able to do their own thing. That's kind of not serving this desire that we have for a consistent experience. And you also... You know, like, I, do I make things in Figma? Yes. But I spend way more of my time, like, coming up with some idea and, like, on a whiteboard or in FigJam of saying, here's here's what I'm thinking about as an idea. But the more important thing that I really need to communicate to the product managers and the designers on the team is, what are we trying to achieve? Why do we think that's important? What is my intent? Like, I'm a military kid. So there's this notion of commander's intent, which I think is really cool, which is to say, this is the mission. You have to go take this hill. And this is why this hill is important. And this is what it's going to look like when you have this hill. And here's the plan. But listen, if you get there and that plan ain't going to work, take the hill. And so I think that's the one thing where a lot of people struggle as they start to take on a leadership role is they, they know how to, they will tell you what to do. They will not express to you what is the intent and why mm. does that matter so that those folks can make better decisions about what to do. And I think that's one of the hardest things to learn as you start to move up the realm is to be able to create that space for product managers and designers and engineers to do their best work rather than just basically saying, here's what I want. I mean, that's one, that's one method, right? That's the thing that works for some people. But if you want to get the best out of the team, you need to tell them what you're trying to get them to achieve so that they can go figure out the best way to do that. I love that. Take the hill. Given the rise of, of AI, how has that uh, influenced your workflow and uh, daily decision-making in the design space at CoStar? Yeah, I think one thing, cool thing about us is we've been using it in, in some fashion or the other in different brands and in lots of different ways. I mean, if you think about AI, it actually isn't new. I know it feels kind of new and shiny, but a lot of these things have been around and people have been experimenting for many years. I think what things like ChatGPT and Bard and Claude did was they ignited our imagination. 
and they made it possible for people who maybe didn't have that really specific expertise to be able to play around with things. And it's also doing things that were wide. So think about a real real estate, typical AI application, which is I have a bunch of photos of a property. I'm trying to understand what kind of state in the, is that property and what kind of build out does it have? What might it need? And so you can, you know, create, you can use AI to analyze these photos and say, this is the state of the property. It might need, you know, here's what's going on the roof. And here is what we think a price is going to look like. And, and here's how this property relates to other properties. Those are all things that are narrow use cases that we could do before, but now we're able to do a lot broader set of use case. And I think what, you know, I'm super excited about things like how would AI enable our clients? So our clients are largely commercial brokers, owners, lenders, and people who are trying to make decisions and communicate with each other and track deals. And there's a lot we can do to make their lives easier and to help them stay on top of stuff so that they're getting the best possible opportunities. They're really enriching their relationships and they're able to close more deals because of those things. Um, but in terms of decision-making day-to-day, I use it a lot for generating ideas. I use it a ton for writing, reviews, performance reviews, user copy, naming things, awesome for that. But I also am really conscious, like in our company, we never put anything into like chat GBT that's proprietary information. And you are always responsible for checking your work. So you always have to make sure like, you know, I, I tend to say like these AI chatbots are like the loud guy at the bar, right? They have a lot of opinions. They could, they're very fluent with them. They're very confident sounding, but I do not want to trust that person with my keys. They hallucinate a lot. Yeah. They, they're, <laughs> they're, and they will hallucinate and they will, again, like this, the really loud person at the bar, not say, like a lot of times you'll talk to a really, you can tell you're talking to an expert because they're going to hedge. Experts hedge always. If it's you're an expert, a data science person, product manager, engineer, you're going to hedge because you have enough experience to know that things happen and things aren't what you think they're going to be and you're going to get into it. If they're not hedging, they either don't know or they're lying. And chat to write the out a lot of this AI stuff, it's not hedging. So you shouldn't trust it. I agree. So I asked this question to everyone who comes on the podcast. And the question is, what's one weakness that you've turned into your strength? <laughs> when I was a kid, there was always somebody in class who was like really good at something. Um, some kid was great at running. Some kid was great at art. Some was great at writing. Some was great at math. And I am not actually remarkable at anything. I could kind of do things. And, but it wasn't great. And that kind of made me feel like, uh, you know, what does that mean for my future is I don't have this singular talent. I don't have, I'm not the smartest at anything. And the funny thing was over the years, eventually I figured out that that actually was a strength is that I can do a lot of things so I can kind of understand them and understand kind of how they work. And I was a consultant for seven years. I can jump into almost any industry and almost any product really fast, not necessarily because I think I know everything. It's just that I'm pretty good at finding out what's important and getting the right people to talk to each other to make decisions. And so this ability to kind of like pull people together because I sort of understand what they're trying to do turned out to be a pretty good strength. But I would say any strength can also be a weakness. 
Um, and once your greatest strength can actually make it hard for you, because sometimes, you know, I would pull the people together to make the decision. Well, at a certain point, <laughs> that's actually my decision. And I'm the one who needs to make it. And I'm the one who needs to stand on my authority and make it happen. Because if I don't, it's not going to happen. And I'm deeply uncomfortable with my authority. Well, I'm getting better. Um, but uh, it, because if you always have to sell stuff, you think I'm just going to convince everybody. But then you know, you've been in it, I'm sure, where it's like, can someone just make the decision so we can move on? And you're like, right, oh, that's you. That's you. You need to make the decision because if you don't make the decision, we're not going to move on. So get over it and go. I love that. So to wrap up our, um, our interview, play. we're going to play a game. Uh, we're going to like fire <laughs> 10 questions here. Um, oh and uh, you, you're you going to have two options and you're going to select what option you prefer. All right. Okay. So let's go. Uh, fast, okay. fast, fast moving questions. So uh, conducting focus groups or guerrilla user testing? Oh, guerrilla user testing. Wireframing key flows or sketching experience storyboards? Wireframing. Leading with analysis or creative vision? Creative vision. Number but four. But have somebody on your good team who's good at analytics stuff who will argue with you. Awesome. <laughs> Number four, iterating based on data or good instinct? Both. Good answer. Because I don't really think you can have, I mean, uh, you kind of need both. Building for power executives or everyday users? Build for everyday users, except for those one or two things that the buyer really wants and make sure you got those. Prioritizing speed or perfection? Oh, hell yeah, speed. Perfect. Number seven, leading a full product division or founding your own studio? Oh, that's really hard. Because uh, I've done both. At the moment, it's Oh man. Okay. Uh, right now it's, it's, um, it's doing everything leading to the market, but that'll probably change <laughs> at some point. I'm going to go back to doing my own studio work. <laughs> okay. Number eight, speaking at a major conference or guest, uh, podcast appearance. <laughs> oh, podcast appearance. <laughs> number nine. More outcome... fun, less work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number nine. <laughs> Outcome-driven roadmaps or inspiring mission statements? Outcome-driven roadmaps. And number 10, dog fooding internally or early customer feedback loops? Early customer feedback loops, but dog fooding always sounds really weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Jessica, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today <laughs> on the Same Logic Podcast. Where can our listeners find you if they'd love to connect? Um, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn mostly these days. And, um, I have a personal website where I post stuff called hallway studio. And thanks for listening to the same logic podcast to stay in touch. Please follow us on LinkedIn or the podcast app. You're listening to this on right now for more episodes. I'm Dwayne Samuels. Take care.